Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Film in the Alps. I am Martina de Biasi and today I'm happy to talk to Cassandra Hahn, a casting director working in Germany, Italy, the UK and US. You can find all the show notes for this episode on our website, filmindialps.com. And now let's welcome Cassandra Hahn to our show. Cassandra, thank you for being with us. Thanks for taking the time. Super happy to be here. Wonderful. Cassandra, you are a casting director. And um, my first question is for people who have never heard about this profession, what does a casting director do actually? I would say there are a couple of different uh, parts to it. And some people specialize more in one part you know, than another. A very important part of casting is actually getting projects uh, greenlit, getting them off the ground. Because most world sales, distributors, um, you know, broadcasters, film funds, they want to see dead actors. It's sort of sometimes just a proof of concept. It doesn't have to be that exact actor. They can change afterwards, but it's important that they see sort of a proof of concept that you can get actors on board. And so getting those actors on board is, is kind of a big part of the, what we would call a development casting. So a producer comes with a project and wants to get it off the ground, and we have to get actors attached to it in order for that to happen. And then the second sort of part is where is once a project is greenlit, it has money, it's or it's being already produced by you know a streamer or a studio or whatever it is, then we're doing the sort of the production casting, which is just casting the roles. So we I sometimes it's offers. I think of actors who could be right who are sort of name actors. Uh, we make offers to those actors and hopefully they say yes. And then there's another segment of that production casting part, which is auditioning actors. So auditioning dozens and dozens. Sometimes uh, it can be thousands. Sometimes it can be 10 or 12. <clears throat> There's a whole variety of, of what needs to be done for each role, which is kind of role specific. And so we carry out those auditions and we often negotiate the contract, at least to a certain point, with the agents of the actors and all the time kind of coordinating with the director and the producer, even between the producer, uh, director and the producer sometimes, in order to be sure that everybody's on board and then that decision is made and then, and then we're the ones that go out and make the offer to the actors. So is it more, it sounds to me like it is an administrative role, but also a really important role in the sense that often a film is made or falls with the right or wrong actresses or actors. Is Absolutely. that right? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a part of it, which is, I would say, administrative, but I would call that administrative part actually more strategic because often what a lot of what we're doing is sort of balancing things and handling people. And, you know, that's sort of the, that it doesn't really feel administrative to me as it does sort of strategic business wise. Also, you know, how much are we going to pay the actors? How much do we need to offer that one in order to get them aboard, but not spend too much money, you know? So we're on the side of the producer from a business standpoint, but it's also an extremely creative process because it's very much about, you know, trying to understand the director's vision for the, the director and producer's vision for the film, sometimes, which is different. <laughs> you know, they have a different sort of film they're making in their head. And so sometimes it's also about resolving that. And then it's about uh, the creative part of it is, um, you know, thinking who brings to that role um, some dimension, you know, maybe something unexpected. Uh, who's the right person, who's the right actor to take the audience on this journey? 
you know? And so that's, that's definitely the creative part of it. That's the, the part I really enjoy. I mean, I enjoy both parts of it, but you know, it, it is definitely, it's, it's, um, I consider it creative work that I do every day. I have so many questions, but uh, <laughs> I, I will limit them. I will limit them it's to the okay. ones that might be interesting for everybody. Um, I've seen in your uh, CV uh, on your website, CassandraHan.com, that you do a lot of co-productions right now, like you help with specific locations. For example, you cast for Italy, you cast for the UK, you cast for Germany, or you cast for the US. So how does this work? Like, how is your work structured right now? You have uh, two producers, three producers from different countries. How, how does this work? I usually have, I don't know, if I, yeah, to be honest, I have probably 10 to 15 projects that are kind of sitting there that might go. And then I've got like five or six that are actively running and in different stages of intensity. So producers just contact me very often. It is divided up. There's a sort of, there's a main casting director and then I'm often bringing a piece of it. Like with Ford versus Ferrari, the main casting director was Rona Cress out in LA. Uh, they wanted Italian actors. They wanted an Italian actor for that role, for the Ferrari role, especially for a few other small ones. And it was very important to them that it was an Italian. And so Rona would have a very difficult time going into Italy because she doesn't know the actor. She doesn't know the agents. She doesn't have experience you know, in that, in that talent pool, I guess I call it. And so, so they bring in, she'll bring in somebody to do that specific thing. The same thing in Barbarians, there, there's, a, it's mostly a German show, but they have these Romans that they're fighting against. And so I'm bringing all the Italians to the cast. Because it's also a financial decision, right? To get uh, people from other countries. If you have uh, international co-productions or European co-productions, is that, is that something that, that, Sure. I mean, they're shooting, you know, people shoot in, in locations. There seems to be sort of a trend towards like this country or that country. But then you start getting into it depends because it's it's whether you're talking about like, for example, with barbarians, I'm not doing what I would call locations casting, which is a whole other thing. That's when they need people locally. Like now they're shooting in Poland. So they have they need Polish actors there locally. So a lot of times that's the extras. And that's people who are shooting one or two days, like the smaller roles, the kind of day players. Um, and so that's um, that's what we call locations casting. And I actually I actually don't really do that anymore. Um, I used to do it, but I, I try to to bring cast on a national le level, like out of Berlin or out of you know Rome, out of London, whatever it is. So let's say that casting or casting is a contact sport, right? So you have contacts <laughs> everywhere. And uh, and these you let play to to match the right people to the right projects. I guess so. I mean, it's more of a you know, it's funny that they call it casting. It's like fishing. You know, you're putting on a net, and then you have to come because it is. Of course, contacts are important. They do help. You know, um, you know, I have good contacts in Germany and good contacts in Italy, and that does help. But it's more a question of knowing, it's like knowing the actors, you know? So I don't have to have a pre-existing contact in order to contact any actor in the world. I just go on IMDb Pro and find the thing and I can send them an email and, you know, get a response. So, you know, of course I'm an established person. I think if you're not established in the business, it's hard. You can't just write to CAA and they're going to respond to you, you know, to respond to you about, you know, Brad Pitt or whoever, you probably won't get a response. So it's, it is, contacts are important, but they're also, the most important thing I think is just, you know, knowing the, 
or getting to know. Sometimes I I don't know already. Like I did, um, I cast out of um, Israel and uh, it was like Israeli Palestinian actors. And I really had to go in and learn those actors, you know? So I like doing that. I, um, I think it's fun, <laughs> but most casting directors, I would say, don't do that. They mostly stay in their, you know, in their specialty. How important would you say is for you as in your work, the discovering of people, of young people, for example, or oh, is that something you understand? Yeah. Oh, it's like the, my most, it's my favorite thing of all. Yeah. It's, it's really like the, the cherry on top of the cake. I mean, it's, I love it. Yeah. And I've done it a few times. We did sort of a big, that usually takes a very long time. Sometimes you're doing what you call kind of street casting. And it's usually for younger roles because it's harder to do with older actors. But like we basically like for Amelie Rent, which went to the Berlinale and won the German film prize and everything, that actor, Samuel Girardi, We searched all through South Tyrol in that case. They were looking for a South Tyrolean teenager and we auditioned hundreds and hundreds of actors to find him. And now he has a career, which is really sweet and great. And every time I see him, I'm like, yay. You know, it, it feels really cool because, you know, we sort of, it's not that you discover them because you can't discover something that isn't, you know, already talented and there and willing and, and the, you know, kind of ripe to be picked. But, but yeah, no, I really, I really enjoy that part of it a lot. And we have to do it quite, quite frequently. We did it also for Terrence Malick, for the little girls in uh, Hidden Life. They were like, we did like kindergarten cattle calls all around uh, <clears throat> South Tyrol to try to find real farm kids for that because they wanted kids that grew up in that rural context and that felt, you know, um, organic to, to being on a, on a farm which is a very different feel from, you know, kids from the city or something like that. It's, it's a different feel completely. Yeah, they hold themselves differently on, on their place, of course. So you have said it already, you are an established uh, casting director and uh, your career has spanned 30 years. So how did you get here? How did you get here? And how does a person from the U.S. come to Europe and come to this little place called South Tyrol? Because I know you have lived here for a long time. Yeah, exactly. I have, I've had this very long career, but I did have a long, a really long break. But I started out casting. Actually, I was working for, I moved to New York right after college. And I was working for a Broadway producer. And he had a show, his name is Richard Frankel. He's Richard Frankel. It's a really big producer now. And he had a show called Love Letters, which was, they needed two actors almost every week. Um, and they would sort of get stars. It would be like, you know, and also my job was a little bit like find out like which actors are dating, you know, which other actors, because maybe they'll want to do like a week in Hawaii together. And so he had all these licenses and, and tours And so it was really intense casting. It was just ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. And so I sort of became involved in that process. Um, there, there was a casting director, but I was you know, doing that. And then from that, I got a movie, which was cast by Sheila Jaffe and George Ann Walken. And I was doing the extras on that film. And Sheila and George Ann are really amazing. They, they did The Sopranos. But they were very groundbreaking in casting in that uh, before that, it was really like there were, you know, TV people in L.A. And then there were theater people and there were film people and nobody ever crossed over, you know. And so The Sopranos was really when they did The Sopranos, they basically were like, okay, we're going to take like gritty New York theater actors, mostly, mostly theater actors. And 
we're going to put them into this TV show. And there was a very different feel to that show. You know, I think part of its success was really the fact that those people felt like they were from New York. They weren't LA people pretending to be New Yorkers, you know? And so, so that was, um, I worked for them, not on that. I didn't work on The Sopranos, but I worked with that, that casting duo. And then I started working as their assistant. And then they started sort of giving me movies they didn't want to do, like the smaller ones, you know? And so, yeah, I just started doing it. And then it became, to be honest, a good way to make money so I could do my other stuff because I was doing a lot of theater at the time. And like, I started a theater company and well, Ethan Hawke started a theater company and I was involved in that from the beginning. And so we were doing like free 99 seat theater, you know, on a like off, off Broadway thing. And so the casting was just kind of like a way for me to pay for that, you know, to pay the rent. But I did it for many, many years and I had a lot of clients and they kept coming back and I did, you know, TV pilots and shows and, um, I used to cast America's Most Wanted. That was really funny. It was like, I don't know if you know that show. It's like they're chasing down criminals and they have these reenactments with the, um, you know, the scene. And so I'd have to, it was actually horrible. I'd have to like see like Polaroids of the, the killer or whatever, like with the person he killed because a lot of times they're connected and then find actors that looked like them and would do it. You know? And the actors used to get arrested. That was actually really funny. Not almost like the police would come because the audience would see the actors, you know? like for 10 minutes and then they'd see the picture of the person only for like a minute, you know, 30 seconds or something. And so they would call the police on the actors all the time. It was like really awful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 It was crazy. But um, anyway, so I, so I I worked in in New York as just on my own casting freelancing for really a long time. And then I moved to Europe, stopped for a long time. And then about six or 2014, uh, the IDM film fund, I would say they sort of location developed me because they realized I had been translating for them for a long time and they realized that I had this casting background. And so they said, uh, why don't you start up again? And I said, yeah, okay. And I did. So, and then I started, you know, really a lot more actually than I was doing in New York from after that. Oh, wonderful. Long story so, short. <laughs> yeah, long story short, of course. It's like- Long story uh, long. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> So I know that you have moved from uh, South Tyrol to Munich, yeah. and uh, we have talked very briefly on an idea on a FAS uh, Film Association South Tyrol meeting, and there you told me that people tended to not take you seriously because you cast it out of uh, of South Tyrol as a province. Is that do I remember this correctly, oh, or is yeah, this wrong? That's a little bit um, harsher than I think I meant it. But my problem really has to do with the profession. Because like I was saying before, there's location casting, and that's a thing, which usually involves extras and small roles. And you're usually doing that in a film location. So South Tyrol is a film location. So if I do that work and I consciously stop doing it, then it's very, very hard for anybody to take me seriously as a casting director for an entire film, for example. They're just not going to do it because you do locations casting. You know, it's like you get identified in that. And so I noticed that it was happening to me more and more, and I really wasn't able to get out of it. I tried really hard for many years. And so eventually I just said, okay, I'm not doing that anymore. And the move to Munich was, I think, in support of that, but there were also other, other reasons to do it. But it's, it is hard. That's hard. I think all the Everybody in South Tyrol, I think, struggles with that. I see the actors struggling with it. You know, they have to have a Berlin agent and move to Berlin in order to be 
taken seriously in larger roles because if you live there, they consider you as day players, you know, or Klein Darstellers, like doing small roles. And so it's very, very hard to, you're like, the, the impetus is all against you, you know, whereas if you have a Berlin agent, it's like, oh yeah, she happens to be from South Tyrol, you know, she's South Tyrol effect, but you're not like a local hire in South Tyrol, you know, so yeah. So that's why we moved, a big reason why we moved. And Munich obviously is the best, uh, is one of the best places in, in Germany besides Berlin probably to be working for film. Mm-hmm. So what advice would you give, for example, to an actress, to an actor? Just go out of South Tyrol? How would one start to be an actress or an actor? It's funny. I mean, the great thing about the film fund is that, you know, all the producers who come, they have to look at the South Tyrolean actors, you know, and that's for me coming from New York. I mean, there are, it's such a privileged position for the actors to be in, you know, they have to be looked at. They have to, every project comes and says, okay, give what South Tyrolean actors can we hire? You know, they're really like, oh my God, we've got to find somebody. So the fact that you're have this system set up with the funding, I would say to actors, you know, you don't have to stay in South Tyrol. The ones that are born there can live wherever they want, but it's a, it's a really good thing and it's something to be valued because actors sometimes come up to me and say, oh, I want to move to New York or I want to move to LA, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, like New York actors would be so happy to have your situation where all the producers coming there have to look at you, you know? I don't think that they pay that much attention To be honest, as long as you have an agent outside, I don't think they pay that much attention to whether you actually live there. Sometimes they want to, they want actors who live there because they don't want to pay to bring them in. But in that case, it's usually quite a small role anyway. So by the time you get up to like five days, six days, seven days, they kind of budget it in that they're going to have to do housing and travel, you know? So it, it, I, I think South Tyrolean actors should be, should feel, I hope, you know, very lucky because I think they are in a very good position. So is it true that you guys are the only casting company right now that works out of or with Saltero or there was another one or how, how is that going? Um, we're def- as far as I know, I could be wrong. We're the only ones that, that cast actors. There are a couple companies that cast extras or as SAG calls them, background. And so, but whether you know, if you give them like a lead role and say, okay, go find an actor, whether they can do that. I, I don't know. I've never had the experience with that. And I've never talked to any producers about whether they can, but I would imagine that they don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess between, so we have background players, which is set up specifically for locations, casting and extras. And that company, Lorenzo, who is my husband, but also we worked together for six or seven years And I kind of trained him in casting now. And so he does, he does most of the, that locations casting now. He does all of it actually. So, you know, sometimes they come with a mixed thing. They'll have like, they want mostly locations, but they'll also, they're also looking for a main role. They're, if they can cast a, you know, a, um, a lead out of South Tyrol or a, you know, a supporting, a good supporting role, then, you know, they'll do it. I always tell the producers try to, because it's a small pool of talent, it's always best to look at the whole pool and then try to see where can they fit into the cast rather than coming. A lot of times they come and they say like, you know, I need a whatever, like specific, really specific role. And then we just don't have it because what we have is what we have. You can't really make more. You can't make people appear out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make people up. 
as much as I would love to just wave a wand and say, yes, we have that. But it would be a very good idea also for politicians. <laughs> exactly. So, okay, but you're, because I, I really, I come from documentary filmmaking, so I have no idea, actually. <laughs> so what is the difference between you and an agent? Oh, my God, I'm so glad you asked that. It's such an important question. And it's so funny, I hear all the time people say casting agent. And we, all casting directors, always say it does not exist. Don't say it. Don't put it together. Because it's like, it would be the equivalent, let me give you a, a, a real world example. Like if you said the prosecution's, de the prosecution defense attorney, you know, it's like two parties that are by nature working not against each other, but you're like, I represent the producer and the, I have fiduciary responsibility to the producer and the agent has fiduciary responsibility to the actor. And so there are people very way, way too many people actually who do both and that's really really like we just it's it's so dangerous because they represent actors but they're also hired by companies to cast you know and so it's a conflict of interest it's a massive conflict of interest and they can't give the producer a clean kind of you know i i have a responsibility to look at every actor possibility if they're getting a commission off of the actors that are in their stable of actors, you know, and that does happen. It happens a lot in Eastern Europe. It happens also in, in Germany and it's very, very bad. So the health of that ecosystem is really dependent on, I advocate on the side of the producer and the agent advocates for their actors that they represent, which are 30, 40, 20, 10, 100, whatever they have. They have their actors and their job is to get the actor the best deal possible. And my job is to get the producer, the best actor at the best terms, you know, possible. So when you go into negotiations, you can't have somebody doing both jobs. That's interesting because um, you've mentioned the European market, let's say. And uh, what would you say is the difference between European market and a market like the one in the US, which probably differs also from New York to LA, but still, is it completely different? Yes, there's a, the basic, huge, enormous difference, which affects everything and which, which people on both sides really don't understand because it's, it's mind blowing to me when I talk to Americans how they can't get it about European, the European system and the Europeans can't get it either. Even if you really say it in a clear way, they can't understand it. So the basic thing is all, almost all, I would say almost all of the, of the financing in America is done with private investments. Okay. Whether you can call a studio, a private investment or a broad or a streamer or individual, it's private equity. You have investors in Europe. It's almost all public funding, you know, so that very difference. And that, you know, I run up against problems all the time, getting, for example, American actors onto a European project, because they expect there to be money already there in the coffers. And they want, for example, almost all like, name American actors all want what's called a pay or play deal, which means that you put money on the table, doesn't have to be the whole amount, but it's going to be amount And that money is non-refundable because you're like making a reservation kind of for that actor. And that's the only way to reserve an actor. But whereas in Europe, it's funding through funding bodies. And so you don't have that money to put down until you get the actor, then you get the money, you know? So it's like, they're two completely different systems and, and they're very incompatible in a lot of ways. 
So would you say there's more European actors and actresses who go to the U.S. to play because it's easier to switch over from that side? Well, no. I mean, look, the, the, the other problem about with American actors is the union because almost every single American actor working is, is in SAG-AFTRA. It's called as an acting union. And they have jurisdiction actually over the whole world. So if a European producer wants to produce with an American actor, they have to sign a contract, which is called a Global Rule One contract, and they have to abide by all the rules. It's like a 750-page book, all the rules, and it's also a very costly thing because you have to pay pension and welfare benefits. You know, there's a lot of things you have to put a money into escrow at the beginning. It's it's a whole. You have to fly them um, for business class or first class, whatever it is. You know, there's a there's a whole list. You have to pay travel days. It's it's a very very complicated set of rules, which all Americans are used to doing because the Americans look at it as like it's either a union film or it's a bad film. Like nobody shoots non-union. You know, I mean, it's not. They have also in America they have tiers. You know, they have like ultra low budget. They have all these different tiers to where you can do a cheap film. It's not that it has to be super expensive, but then everybody in the union makes concessions knowing that that's a student film or that that's a, a low budget film or whatever it is, you know, but they don't have those tiers in Europe. And so, so European producers are stuck with the sort of general one and that's a huge block. It's a huge block. So a lot, most producers, if they have a choice and they don't have to have an American because they need a bankable person of a you know, specific bankable person or something, I usually recommend that they go to they go to the UK and have British actors play Americans. And to be honest, that is now that everything's globalizing so much with the streamers are really creating a lot of globalization. I see it as a really, as a big disadvantage for American actors, because I see so many productions that would hire an American. They love a particular actor. And then they find out how hard it is to deal with SAG and, you know, and how expensive and how kind of scary and difficult and unknown. It's a lot of unknowns for them. And so, and it just doesn't seem very user-friendly. So they usually decide not to do it. Yeah, well, it depends on what kind of uh, movies uh, you want to make, because in the end, we all usually know more American actors. Sure, of course, of course. But I think a lot of the productions that have American actors in them that shoot over here in Europe are not, at, at essence, European projects. They are. And it's better now, like Netflix and all of that, you know, Netflix knows how to deal with SAG. It's no problem for them. You know, it's no, it's like no issue whatsoever. You know, the bigger companies, you know, Wildside and Rome, they, they're, they're, you know, they're fine. They, they hired Jude Law. They do that, you know, they have to do the SAG projects. It's not an issue for them. Once you've done it a couple of times, but for small to medium-sized production houses in, in Europe, A lot of them don't even know that they have to do the unionized, like sit at lunches with people and they're like, oh, uh, this is who we want in the thing. And even sometimes this is who we have. And I was like, oh, and you're signing a SAG contract. And I'm like, a what? Like they have absolutely no idea. And they may even, they said, yeah, but the American agent didn't say anything about that. And I'm like, well, they expect that, you know, and that's the kind of thing that's just like the, the communication thing, you know, miscommunications or like assumptions They can go on because no American agent will ever talk about SAG because it's a given. Of course, it's, you're signing SAG paperwork. There's no discussion, you know? And so they just wouldn't even think of it as something to say. So I do, I run into it a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. 
I know that you have, you're one of the founding members of uh, Women in Film, Television and Media Italia. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a um, super important organ that probably needs to be known more. How did you get to be part of this founding committee? That was actually really funny. So I have a friend, a good friend in uh, in Rome um, named Kissy Dubin, who's uh, she's American and she's lived in Rome like 20 years, like I've lived in Italy. And, um, and she... She just called up one day, she called Women in Film in LA, and she said, I want to join the Italian chapter. And they were like, oh, there is no Italian chapter. <laughs> and so she called me and was like, so they said that if we get 30 people together, we can start a chapter. And so should we do it? And I was like, yeah. So we just got people together. She did most of the work, to be honest. And yeah, we got people together. We got the, the charter members together and we just started it. And it's actually doing really well. It was a huge, um, the first kind of gathering in Rome. Well, we had one, I remember on my 50th birthday was the first one. And then there was sort of a cocktail party and it was, I mean, it just really spread like wildfire. So many people showed up and now it's, it's really running as a, you know, as, as a good organization. It's really helpful. I mean, it's uh, a lot of networking And then they also do a lot of support, you know, offering workshops or putting people together, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, um, it's great. And actually a huge thing that women in film did was trying to get gender parity, for example, at the Venice Film Festival. They really were trying to, they were trying to get that 50-50 by 2020 initiative that started at Cannes the, the year before, back in, I think it was like 2018, 2019. And so in 2019, we all went to Venice and really kind of lobbied, you know, Venice to, to, to really take it more into consideration because there were so many, I think that year there were like four films, you know, at the festival, but in all the many, many films that are there, there were like four directed by women, something really crazy. It was like, or 4%, I can't remember, but it was just like a really, really low number. And so We also, Women in Film also, we're in touch with the Women in Film in LA. And for example, uh, Paul Fig, he's a really great director, comedy director, and he's really into, they have this um, initiative called Reframe. And they, yeah, they do all kinds of amazing things in LA, like... Um, he did he did a lot of things for LGBT people. Did yeah, I have this yeah, wrong? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, very possibly, yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's really cool. So he came over and he does... He does this reframe things where, for example, he'll like go into a studio with a, a young female director and just be like, I vouch for her. <laughs> you know what I mean? Kind of become like, so that it's just because like bringing, trying to get women, uh, you know, that he sees a lot of potential and into like positions where they can actually be taken seriously. And then once they have a credit under the, you know, and they have sort of a stamp also the reframe thing that everybody was like, oh my God, I want the stamp. I want the stamp, which is just kind of like gender parity in the, in the general you know, production and everything. So yeah, that's, I think it's really important. And um, especially in Italy, Italy is definitely um, has more, more to go <laughs> in terms of, in terms of uh, reaching gender parity. Yeah. It has a, has a longer road, let's say ahead, as opposed to behind, you know, about that. So, I mean, everyone does, but, but Italy has definitely needed it. Yeah. I won't add to that because by now, I think uh, after all the uh, episodes, uh, after the, this is the sixth episode, and I think I talk about it maybe every, <laughs> every time. So I will stop here. So 
Your uh, last name is uh, Han, and I know that that has to do with your sensibility towards um, towards inclusion. Can you talk about it a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so my father is Chinese and um, and came over to America when he was about 18. And actually, my mother is from like Appalachia, which is a really, really rural you know, like where the Hollywood, where the, uh, what are they called? The hillbillies, Beverly Hills hillbillies, whatever, the Beverly hillbillies. Uh, sorry to say that, but that's the, you know, it's really like it's backwoods. It's like very mountainous. And they're 22 years apart. My mother's older. And so they had this really crazy kind of, I grew up with, you know, two parents from extremely different backgrounds, very different ages. My mother really a generation ahead of my father. And I think that, and then my father being new to the country, like his mother moved to Chinatown and like never learned English. So there was no kind of integration into the society at all. In a lot of ways, there was a lot of cultural not fitting in. You know, I grew up in Southern California and everybody was sort of blonde hair, blue eyes and, you know, this very California Barbie doll thing. And I definitely didn't look like that. I didn't feel like that. I didn't, you know, relate to that. And so I grew up you know, feeling very American, but also feeling um, very much, an Im- you know, as part of an immigrant family. So I guess, you know, when I see in Germany, you know, you see a lot of, I don't know, it's, it, it's everywhere, I guess. It's in Germany, it seems like they're, they have, actually in Italy as well. I, I feel like nobody really gets it, you know, what it's like to be an immigrant, what it's like to have come from another, even me as an American, to be honest, you know, it's like I living in a foreign place is, is, there's a certain level of stress, even for me. And I come from, you know, obviously, like, I mean, I come from a relatively privileged background. My father kind of came in and then managed, he became a doctor and, you know, managed to kind of like give me a, a very privileged upbringing. But I just see that it's, um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to be in a foreign place and to be, to feel like kind of like an intruder sometimes, you know? And so I guess I see that it's really important to tell those stories because I feel like like film and television, especially now with streamers being so much a part of everybody's daily life. And, you know, that if, if those, if, if we're telling stories, we, the industry are telling stories that are inclusive and that allow people to enter into somebody else's life and to see walk in their shoes and to see the world from their point of view. I just think like it makes society more tolerant and more understanding. And it just can, can give you like an insight into what you might not understand if you're looking at it from the outside. Would you say you have a leeway as a casting director to contribute to this? Yes and no. Netflix is making an enormous difference in this. I would say I had a couple of years ago, I sat down with the head of casting, the director of casting them in LA, um, Cesar is his name, Caesar actually, <laughs> I call him Cesar, but it's Caesar. You know, we sat in Germany and he was really telling me that they're trying to, you know, just what they're trying to do to, to make inclusion a big thing and, you know, to be, to be better about it in Europe. It's absolutely a given now in America, you know, I think that the, after the George Floyd protests and all of that, the, and, and after me too, I just think that America's on a pretty good track, you know, of course there's still problems, but um, it's, you know, I think that, you know, stories about people of color and, you know, women in general and just diversity completely, equity and inclusion. It's just like a, a given now. 
Um, it's really important. I think everybody sees it as important. Um, and here I still get, I've been yelled at by producers for even suggesting an actor of color for something that is not written as an actor of color. I mean, like yelled at, like, are you crazy? You know, really rude and mean. I still do it. <laughs> so I think now though, because Netflix is leading the way in this and because because people are seeing that if they, if that it's sort of a hot property now, like if you come up with a, you know, it's not just Netflix now, the other other streamers are also on board. And so it's like, oh, wait a second, I have a, a, a movie about someone from Turkey who lives in Germany. You know, people are like, oh, that's like, that could be an easier sell right now in this climate, you know? So I think that's what you have to do. You have to make a climate where those stories are written in that way, you know? Because it's hard as a casting person to come and say, okay, let's make the, the main character Turkish, have a Turkish background, for example. Then they say, oh, but it changes the story and da, da, da. It doesn't necessarily as people as people that have a different background i mean are not defined by what they yeah, were, no, totally. what their parents I mean, were. It's exactly i mean it's crazy there's that, that great i love that film yesterday where the main character is just from you know wherever i don't know he's like maybe pakistan i don't know where he's from exactly he never says there's never any reference to it at all he's just the main character and he has that family and that's it you know and the story's about him and it's a great story it's a great movie i loved it But it's not an issue, you know? They just did, um, what's that movie called? They just did a movie with uh, Stanley Tucci, just did a film where it's like um, it's like a gay couple, but there is, again, it's not, their their sexuality is nothing to do with the story, you know, and Colin Firth, Colin Firth, I forgot what it's called. Anyway, so that's, I love that. I think that's the direction it has to go in, you know, where it's not like, oh, but then we have to tell a story about a gay couple instead of why can't you just tell a story about a couple? And I think also that policies really could help shape this. So if there's public funding, there must be diversity. And also I think that we in Europe are a lot behind the racism talks that the U.S. has, which is unfortunate because we have had, uh, of course, uh, both immigration and also simple <laughs> mixing of uh, all kinds of people in Europe for millennia. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the funding bodies are are crucial in Europe because, you know, if they, if they would just, and I don't know, they must have, if, if you talk to funding people, they must, they, maybe they have a reason for not doing it. I don't know. I haven't had really in-depth conversations, but I just feel like if you, even if it doesn't have to be punitive, but if you give extra points, you know, if it's, if it's, uh, then I think uh, people, people will think about it more, but it does, to some extent, it has to happen at the writing phase. You know, like I said, it's, it's possible, but it's a lot harder if, if we have to do it afterwards in casting. And then you have to have also people who are sensible to these things uh, when they write, which is also difficult. I would never be able to write, let's say, a black character. I have no idea. I, I don't know how to do that, even if I wanted to. I mean, if I, I'd, I'd love to, but uh, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, sure, exactly. But then I could just write a character and say in a note, I want it to be a person of color. Or maybe, I don't know, how do you do that? Because in Europe still... No, I, people are doing it much, much more, you know, and like I said, it's always, you know, uh, I mean, I, I know I keep um, saying how, how much Netflix has changed the landscape, but they just, there's no, no comparison, you know, and when I work with Netflix, they're always, they always work it in, it's always a thing, they're always like, you know, completely open and not just open, but like, hey, you know, there's a place we can do, you know, but let's look in that community for that, for this role, just always, always, always so, so proactive about it. 
and they really care about it. And I, and I get the feeling because I have had in-depth conversations that it's not just about being politically correct, that they really truly feel that their job is to reflect the world and you can't reflect the world if you're only telling stories about white heterosexual males. Right. And I also have the feeling that for me, when I watch Netflix, as of course I do, and then I watch something else, for example, go to the movies or see a European thing, I'm always, there's something a bit missing, you know, it's always the same type of story, which, I mean, are great stories, but we are more plural than that because our society is more plural than that. Already it is, you know, and that's the point. And I think that has to do with audiences because I think that those, you know, kind of network television things, they have an older audience, they have a very conservative audience, they tend to have a, you know, and so they are very, they just tend to, to be conservative also with their casting choices. You know, they're going to choose the same actors generally, and they're going to say, you know, the actors that are familiar to their audiences, you know, and TV audiences, network TV audiences, let's face it, are like over 60 mostly, you know, and so that's what they have to you know, that to please their audience, they can't like show up with, uh, you know, <laughs> something that freaks their audience out, unfortunately. But the good thing is that I feel like the Netflix audience is, is diverse and people go for that and, and people like to have the choices and the different stories. Yeah. And also, if you want to uh, conquer the world market, which I bet they want to do even more, then they have to include a lot of other people of different colors because uh, most of the people in the world uh, come from other places. But for example, I, I talked once to a, a, a person that buys for Al Jazeera and she says, well, our audience is so young. You have to target it to young people under 20 because we have a demographic which is young. Like, like yeah, we have to think globally, I think. And uh, and uh And it's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's, better, it's amazing better. though, but it, you know what? It's such an exciting time. I really think it's like a golden age of content. I mean, no, as I remember, I mean, looking back, remembering back to even New York in the, you know, 30 years ago, I mean, I couldn't have imagined a world where uh, I could watch. Actually, just, I was just, because uh, sometimes I do this international voting, voting for the international Tony, uh, Tony's Emmy Awards. They have, um, and so I get assigned regions and stuff. So I'll end up watching like a whole bunch of, I don't know, Korean and Chinese Japanese series, you know, and you're just like, it's so amazing that I can, that the audience can fall in love with, a, you know, an Israeli show or a Korean show or a Turkish show, or, I mean, my daughter's watching a, a, a Thai show right now, you know, and it's like, I, that was just not impossible before. And it's amazing because she watches it in Thai, you know, with, with subtitles and she's 14 and she loves it and her friends watch it too, you know? And that's just, that's just, um, it's really, that's again, it's a Netflix effect, which has just changed the, it just changed everything, you know? And I find it, I know that some people are called them disruptors and aren't happy with the changes, but I think it makes everybody else, it, it, the goal has, has shifted. And I think the goal is, is, is fantastic. The goal is to do wonderfully written shows as Netflix brings them to to us and to our into our apartment one of the last questions i have is what does your future look like i think your career has changed a lot you have grown as a person i guess also as we all do when we get on with our careers where do you want to go yeah Such an interesting question. I want to continue in the direction of my, the trajectory where I am now and just, I think, continue on that path, which is um, I'm doing a lot. I'm, I'm focusing on the German market a lot. We're doing a lot in Germany. Also, 
I would like to do more, like I really loved working on Ford versus Ferrari. I would love to do more, you know, studio projects that are shooting out here in Europe. I do think that because there's such a difference between Europe and the States and because it's very, very difficult for them to work together just on, on so many levels. And I think because I have really in-depth knowledge about how it works in Europe, how casting works here, because it is a completely different system and with some, a lot of traps, a lot of minefields, you know? So I feel like I can bring that knowledge to the table in America and I want to keep doing that more. And yeah, I'm really liking, I mean, I still work a lot in Italy. I'm not, there's nothing that I, you know, I like doing both. I want to continue working in Italy and in Germany, but I have now, like I said, I have a new um, agent out in, in America and, you know, we're sort of planning together how to, you know, kind of get deeper into, you know, the bigger kind of international projects. So I guess that's, I would say that's my goal. And nothing about production. Sure, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of, it's a little hard, combine, not combining, but it's the rhythm of how to, of casting is very, you have very, very intense periods of time and you have, you know, and so sometimes I struggle with maintaining, uh, like we have some projects that we're producing now that are in development. And a lot of, sometimes I have really a good chunk of time I can give to that. But then sometimes when the casting comes along, it just comes along and you can't do anything. You know, it's like you have a deadline next Thursday for something and you got to upload tapes for Netflix and you have to do it. You know, you can't like say, oh, sorry, but I'm doing something else. So um, the casting kind of dictates the, the schedule, I guess I would say. But yeah, we're doing, we started a production company in South Tyrol and um, we have a, a documentary actually, which is going quite well, which is about South Tyrol right after World War II and during, during World War II, but this sort of working with a writer and a historian, a very well-known historian in England named James Holland. And he's also a presenter. Um, and I'm, we're working together with these uh, BBC guys, really cool, and a BAFTA-nominated director. And um, so we're doing that documentary. And then we've got, I've got Cowboy, which is a really awesome uh, Lisa Marie Kirschbaumer's. Um, Lisa. Uh, Lisa, yay, Lisa. Mm -hmm. Lisa's. Um, Who is actually the co-author of this project. Of yeah, exactly. It's all in the family. And um, so we did the Rocanti Script Lab together. And I think that's an amazing story. And it's really unique. And her vision is really um, I don't know. She's just, she's a one of a kind, you know, and the way she thinks is so cool. And so, yeah, so we're going to some co-production markets with that project. Um, and we had a great Rocanti. We got a lot really far with the script and it's pretty exciting. She's writing the book now, which is cool. And so, yeah, so we're doing that. And then we have another project with a, a British director. This is his second feature named Ed Christmas. We have that project and we have another one, which is called Italy First. And it is, it's a comedy and it's super cool. It's sort of a political comedy. And I really love that as well. So, I mean, our production things are fantastic and make me really excited. Um, it's just always a challenge to try to like keep them going forward and do the casting at the same time, you know, but Lorenzo helps me a lot with that. <laughs> we work together on the projects on the, on the producing side. Wonderful. So, Cassandra, if somebody wants to contact you, how would they go about doing that? The best way to contact me, I would say, is to have your agent 
uh, submit you for a project when they see a breakdown for a role that you're right for. Because uh, contacting me if I don't have a role for you is not necessarily useful to anybody. Whereas, you know, um, you can also, for example, on Spotlight or on eTalenta, there are projects where like I'll release a breakdown and I'll put in actors access, which is meaning that all actors, even unrepresented actors can get that breakdown. And so then you can submit yourself online for that project. And then I will see you there. And I definitely am open to unrepresented actors. I don't, how do you say, I'm not against uh, unrepresented actors at all. For our show notes, could you then provide us uh, with the links for these uh, places? Sure, sure, yeah. Spotlight is the main UK uh, casting platform and eTalenta is a good platform. Uh, I do go to eTalenta or Cast Forward, you know, to look for for actors. And that's a sort of Europe-friendly one. That's like continental Europe-friendly. Perfect. So, Cassandra, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great talk. And thank hopefully, you so much. Hopefully we will uh, talk again with a project maybe of yours or, or if we have uh, something, something deeper to discuss. So thank you, Cassandra. Look forward to it. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. Thanks again to Cassandra Hahn. You can find us on Instagram at Film in the Alps and you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes and other podcast providers. Lydia Gasparini edits this show. Alexander Demetz is our web designer. Lisa Maria Kerschbaumer is the co-author of the project Film in the Alps. And she is in charge of the film calendar you can find on our website, filmindialps.com. I am Martina de Biasi, and I thank you for listening to this show. Until next time.